You're listening to the Wartime Leadership Podcast with your host, Nathan Coy. All right. Thank you, Jeff, for that wonderful introduction as always. Dude, your engineering skills are beyond par because you have to make me sound good. And I know that that's a hard thing to do. Uh, Welcome back to the Wartime Leadership Podcast, where we explore what spiritual resilience looks like in people's lives. Now, these people are from all different parts of the world. They're from all over the place. And today we have Roman, I'm going to mispronounce your last name, Pro Coop Chuck. Did I, did I kind of get it? Yeah, somewhat. You're good. Oh, man. Passable. I knew I knew I was going to be bad at it. I knew it. But hey, Roman, welcome. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You know what? I'm I'm already enjoying our conversation because we have a lot of connection just simply because of different jobs that we've done and and uh, the different aspects, which we'll kind of get into a little bit. But before we get going, I've got some real quick, easy, random questions picked out by the random question generator. So what is the most inspiring thing anyone has ever taught you? Uh, I mean, I think just work ethic, honestly, um, and, and seeing kind of hard work. My grandfather, we came to the U.S. My grandfather was retired already um, in Ukraine. He started doing roofing till he was 75 here in the U.S., uh, Monday to Saturday. And then Sunday, he went to church uh, in the morning and at nighttime, and he never complained. So I think I get my work ethic and kind of, I guess, if I run into something, I guess a little bit of grit from what I've seen him um, overcome and kind of not complain about situations. Man, and that's a lot. And I think that's also kind of a generational aspect of people from that generation, just work ethic and pushing through. Do you think an animal's life is just as valuable as a human's life? I guess yes and no. I mean, every life, I guess, is valuable per se, but you're going to have kind of like the, uh, the soul discussion my one of my dogs actually just passed away in february from cancer that we had for 13 years so at that point she was kind of like a member of the family a lot of people interacted with her over the years and got value Mm -hmm. from spending time with her so personally somebody that has a pet or like a dog that you know demonstrates unconditional love i would say yes i think it's who you're who you're asking like a, a pet owner probably somebody that hates animals probably not probably somebody who's a uh, a vegetarian would be like absolutely and then there's me who's like i want my steak medium rare yeah i mean there's that aspect of it as well <laughs> hey speaking of animals if you could come back to life as any animal what animal would you be uh i think a wolf just how kind of the pack mentality there's like a leadership aspect within that as well kind of the leader I would say leads from the trenches. So if you see like a wolf pack moving, they put kind of like the weaker ones to keep the pace in the front and then the kind of the alphas in the back. So I like kind of um, that hierarchy of, you know, wolves and kind of like how they interact and hunt. Oh, absolutely. All right. Let's see. Uh, Do you or how long have you prepared for this interview? Uh, not at all. I like to just jump into it. Honestly, I just like to know kind of the topic and the talking points in the audience kind of briefly read 
five, 10 minutes about the show, maybe a snippet, but not a lot. Like I like interviews that are like in the moment and not scripted. I think it gives the most value and authenticity. So at this point doing almost 200 interviews and, you know, media publications in like a few years, I found that to be kind of the best approach or delivery for me personal. Yeah. And, and actually the question long was how long have you prepared for this date? Apparently this random question generator is for somebody who's really bad at dating. So Roman, why don't you walk us through your background? You know, a lot of people use it kind of as a moment of testimony or, or whatnot. Take as long as you need to just kind of walk us through your family history, bring us up to, you know, entrance into the U S the U S secret service and, and everything that you've actually had since that point yeah sure so um originally from ukraine uh born in 1984 currently actually have five family members in the ukrainian military fighting in the war over there um one of my family members got her house blown up in an airstrike as well so it's kind of like obviously a personal connection so we came here in 1990 ukraine was still under the soviet union technically we let we left because of um religious persecution uh, I, I guess labeled as religious refugees to the U.S. We had a sponsor here. Hmm. So in communism, theoretically, you're not allowed to worship God, regardless of what God you worship. Like the state is your God, like you're supposed to be subservient. And if you do, obviously there's penalties. So like the KGB would sit outside of the church. We, you know, we were Pentecostal. Uh, now I guess I consider myself more non non-denominational. I feel like it's more about having a personal relationship with God, but at the time, uh, there'd be KGB, you know, tapping your phone, listening kind of to the sermon. If something is like super uh, potentially close to saying or lining up like it's against the state, like a pastor would be taken in for interrogation. Or if you said something that's patriotic in general, you would disappear and go to a labor camp in Siberia, that kind of stuff. Remember, you know, standing kind of in bread lines with my mom uh, for like a few hours things like that. And, um, you know, when, uh, I guess the Soviet Union started, uh, kind of falling, the Berlin wall fell and it was like pedestroika where they started loosening up immigration. We had the opportunity. We had a family member sponsor us here. And like I said, we came over as religious refugees to the East coast to, uh, New Jersey. I was actually supposed to end up in California, uh, San Mateo. So I often think about the dynamic growing up, uh, uh West coast versus East coast. And kind of those, uh, you know, influences around me. But uh, coming here with 600 family members to a two-bedroom apartment, everybody kind of had to, you know, start working. I got right into kindergarten, so it was easy to kind of pick up the language. When you learn a language at a certain age, obviously, you don't return the, uh, retain the accent. Or it's less difficult because your brain is already kind of like, you know, in hyper mode in terms of learning as a child. Yeah. I went to school here, went to college, was a criminal justice major, uh, interned with the Secret Service uh, with the top secret federal clearance on the counterfeit currency squad in my last semester. And then when I graduated, state, local, federal agencies froze hiring. It was the 2008 recession, basically, like the worst thing we've seen. I don't know in how long since I was only born in the 80s. But um, I kind of pivoted there. I had an opportunity to get into digital marketing, which I was doing and have been doing for about 15 years. I had an opportunity kind of at the gym. Somebody kind of saw like I had potential and I said, kind of, why not? And ran with it and have been doing it with, you know, hundreds of clients, Fortune 500 companies, you know, since then, um, you know, in 20. 
2012, 2013, really founded my own agency and uh, got married in 2014. Uh, within that time, obviously, my wife and I wanted to start a family. We found out that she had uh, endometriosis, which makes it tougher for her to get pregnant. Started doing infertility treatment. And when we started doing that, different egg retrievals and stuff like that. And then we experienced in about three and a half years, six miscarriages, uh, which obviously was hard from a male perspective as a couple and for my wife. That led us to potentially exploring other ways to start a family. So we looked at foster care. We became foster parents since June of 2018. We fostered 29 kids. And uh, in March, this past March, March 2023, we got to adopt our first child that we had straight from the hospital that came over two weeks of age. He was with us for about, we had like the little board, 900 and something days before we were able to adopt him. No other kind of case or child made it to that adoption step with us. and. Um, but yeah, I mean, other than that, we've experienced probably like five deaths, close deaths in our family in the last few years. So just a lot of, you know, um, I guess, hardship per se from like the emotional side and a lot of like figuring out like how to grieve. Uh, losing my grandfather, that was the first kind of family member close to me I lost. And suddenly I lost my grandmother to cancer this past summer. My My wife lost her grandfather a week apart from my grandmother so it's just a lot it's uh in a short amount of time man that is a lot to endure i mean really in what like almost 40 years just a lot of but in the last few years losing so many people so i understand man and now that we sit down and we talk about this there's actually a lot more connection between us than i originally had thought than just the job uh, the same thing in, in my family. Uh, we actually adopted our son due to a lot of the same complications. Uh, we did that back in 20. So I understand what that looks like with you, but 1990, being in the Ukraine, 1989 is when the Berlin Wall fell, correct? Yep. So what was it like being in Soviet in the Soviet Union as the wall is falling down as a child? I mean, it wasn't that publicized. Obviously, I was too young to kind of like grasp the severity of the situation. But um, like I said, after that is when they started loosening, loosening up immigration and started letting people out in terms of immigrating in a large, you know, group. Like previously, it was, you know, very hard to get out of the Soviet Union, especially immigrate out. Then there was also this like weird process. So we had to go through Vienna, Austria, uh, Rome, Italy, and then we got to New Jersey. And that was kind of like the path to get to the uh, to the U.S. So everybody coming from Ukraine and other areas. It's funny because when we were in Italy, we were in Italy for um, for like two months. And before we left, Italy gave us the option to stay. So then I often also think <laughs> if we stayed in Italy, how different life would be and me speaking potentially italian and ukrainian and not necessarily english i mean i'm sure i would have learned english at some point but there's that kind of dynamic as well yeah we we would have had to start out this conversation with buongiorno <laughs> instead of hello so you you immigrated finally to new jersey after let's say you said two months in rome and, and it was a few weeks in uh, vienna austria okay. before rome and so then you get over here to the states did you didn't speak much english when arriving did you 
Uh, zero. Nobody <laughs> spoke. My my parents, nobody spoke anything, any word of English, honestly. So what was that like for you to to be in a land where you're just kind of looking around going, I don't understand what you're saying? It wasn't bad because initially we came to a town that had a Ukrainian Pentecostal church. So everybody there immigrated in the last few years. So the services were in Ukrainian. Some people could like give you a few pointers, so on and so forth, potentially like the the go-to job for for men you know here also people coming from eastern europe to you know on the work visa currently is construction so a lot of the guys did roofing uh, concrete carpentry that kind of stuff um and a lot of women did like housekeeping either for themselves uh, eventually kind of building up a clientele or for others like house cleaning and so on and so forth so yeah, although it was difficult because my grandparents that were already retired in the US only got services for like two months. So like Medicare, Medicaid, whatever, you know, food stamps or whatever you get, they were only granted that for a handful of months. And then it was kind of like fend for yourself. I know, you know, some people were on, you know, government assistance for the majority of their lives. So I don't know how that really happened mm. because they actually needed it. But, um, but yeah, it was, I mean, it was, it wasn't easy. I mean, it, it's, you're getting a five-year-old's perspective at the time, but, um, like I said, everybody found a job. Every, like we all lived together for a certain duration of time. So everybody worked. So like the rent, you know, was the main bill, but it wasn't like, you know, scrambling for money because it was at that point, um, you know, my aunt, my mom, my dad, and both of my grandparents working. So it was, you know, five adults working and, you know, bringing whatever to the table in terms of the job they currently had at that time. Man, so you you've had some really good influences in your life, you know, to be able to see what it looks like to work hard. You said your your grandpa actually worked well into his 70s, uh hard for a country that he loved. You've had some good influences as far as the work ethic goes. Yeah, that and also if you look at like, you know, unicorn companies, tech companies, a lot of them are founded by Eastern Europeans, so they have that kind of chip on their shoulder, I guess that extra grit from experiencing either directly or you know through their parents that immigrated here like the immigrant experience and the experience of living under uh the soviet union i mean even now you uh you see people coming here from communist kind of still ideology countries they're very appreciative and they they're ma uh, mainly uh conservative so a lot of Cubans, they're they're Republican and, and more like right leaning. And then you see somebody come from a country like, I guess, Mexico, they're more left leaning. But people from, you know, Nicaragua, Cuba and other areas, they'll come here and they're like super appreciative and super kind of patriotic as well. So do you think that some of that is tied to the economical uh, status of which they came from? Yeah, I think that I think it's one of those things where they do say like you have opportunity uh, in the US. It's like, I mean, being even traveling around the world in terms of a free market where you can like start from zero and with your hard work. And if you have kind of the work ethic and have the knowledge base and the expertise, you can most likely than not, you know, make it to whatever level you want to make it. It's hard to do that even now in a lot of countries because there's a lot of corruption. There's Obviously, in Eastern Europe, there's a lot of corruption. So, like, you can go and pay off some kind of, you know, uh, licensing board or something that can get rid of a competitor. Um, there's situations like that. I mean, yes, there's corruption in the U.S., but not nothing to the level of some places currently in the world. And I think it's just a lot of 
gratitude and you know kind of just being thankful for the opportunity to be here all right so fast forwarding a little bit beyond you know being the five-year-old and whatnot so you actually interned with the u.s secret service so what was that what was that experience like for you yeah so it was uh probably a six-month background check where they had like a they had their own private investigators at the time it was a retired secret service agent so like that was kind of like his still with the agency doing background checks and stuff so it's really to get their clearance because at that point like i knew like movements of dignitaries and stuff like that when i would you know go in the office i can see a board with literally like where people are movements different like amount of people and vehicles and convoys like things i can use to sell to a you know a malicious party that could potentially obviously have historic implications so the background check was about um six months they had to speak to like if you go to church like a pastor like what your morals are your integrity make sure you, you're not in any kind of like paramilitary organization speak to your few of your close friends and then once that granted i worked out of the um new york new jersey uh field office which at the time was in morristown which is weird was in a different uh um city but it was still considered like that field office and i was on the uh, counterfeit currency squad so really they consisted of uh, processing potential counterfeit currency (coughs) and different things like you know reading up on counterfeit currency like at this point it's funny when i go in a supermarket and they do random things to see if a bill is counterfeit i'm like that doesn't even work like if you want me to really tell you like the handful of things because there's like a level so like if this looks real you move on to the next thing it's like a checklist kind of and like for some like you know the checklist could be like 50 60 things if you really go into it and take a magnifying glass so i was on the counterfeit currency squad it was the last year of bush's presidency uh went on one protective duty which was cool obviously for somebody in college went to the range you know heard different stories the the agents told and thought i was gonna go that route but then i saw that um it was very bureaucratic um the agency so if you're if the head of your field office like didn't like you they'll send you to like anchorage alaska where there's like two people or like fargo and you're stuck there for the duration of you know several years and then at least one time in your career you have to hold like the dc post like protective duty so in terms of thinking about potentially starting a family or having something kind of like settling in a in an area it wasn't necessarily kind of the right fit for me so that you know coupled with the recession hitting and when i graduated those are kind of the two factors that i ended up not doing that so this is one of those areas where we had a little bit of a connection because i obviously worked uh the the airplane side of things so just knowing the logistics that goes into it you know secret service agents have it rough (laughs) with a lot of their time and now just to find out more so it being a bureaucratic type you know bureaucracy issue is even it it makes me grateful for the job that i had (laughs) as well as that but uh when you moved on from the secret service you 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 went and you decided to go a different route what was the route that you went after leaving there yeah it wasn't even by choice it was by necessity because Mm -hmm. when i graduated i applied for months and months and couldn't really find anything so at that point it was like questioning your own 
I guess, uh, knowledge base and, you know, expertise and, you know, intelligence. And I guess coming out of college, feeling like a little cocky in a way, like, you know, I went to college as the first person in my family to go to college in the U S and it's like, kind of like deserving of a job. And that's obviously not the case, even in today's economy, which is kind of rough. So just because you have a piece of paper that doesn't really, you know, establish much or doesn't really pre-qualify you to get a job automatically. So, you know, I was kind of down and I mean, somewhat, I guess, depressed in a way. And for months and months, the only thing that really kind of kept me sane was going to the gym, clearing my head. And, you know, sometimes I strike up a conversation because you never know who you meet, where you meet them in terms of an opportunity. And basically one person one day said, you know, come out to my car uh, after your workout. I have something that may help you. It was 2008. So I could have been anything. And I said, kind of, why not? And take that opportunity. And I went out to his car and he opened his trunk and handed me a packet about search engine optimization, which is kind of within the digital marketing space. They said, read this packet, take another month or two and, and, uh, you know, learn it and you can start doing it for my company. So at that point I had really nothing to lose. So I said, why not? And that kind of got my foot in the door of now a 15 year career that I've held director roles on the agency side. I've, you know, founded an agency in 2012. I worked with fortune 500 clients, uh, at this point, probably seven to 800 different clients in my career, you know, managing, you know, a couple million dollar portfolios. And I was just kind of on a whim and, and taking a chance on myself and, you know, the worst I can potentially do within that opportunity is learn something that I may not use. So, <laughs> And I've kind of been running with it all, ever since. All starting with some guy pulling out a piece of paper about SEO out of his <laughs> out of his trunk of his car. Yeah, I mean, I I knew him from college from a from a different gym, and we somehow ma like managed to go to this other gym, which was probably a half hour away from where we kind of met, um, and we would kind of have the same workout schedules towards the night. And, you know, strike up a conversation, you know, be friendly. So, I mean, you never know where it's going to lead. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's why you should never burn any bridges, anyone. So a few times you have mentioned, uh, you know, going to church, uh, really finding a route with your community as well, going back to church. So how would you define spiritual resilience? I think it's like having anything stack against you and and having the faith because, you know, faith is something that you have regardless of if something's going good or bad. And if you see it or if you don't, you know, having blind faith, you know, blindly being faithful in something, uh, you know, a mission, uh, whatever you're trying to accomplish, if you have, let's say, a nonprofit or a philanthropic effort. So I think it's just kind of like a blind pursuit. And, uh, you know, when you look at people in the Bible, I mean, God used people that are coming from tough situations. They didn't, he didn't use this perfect person. He used, you know, murderers, adulterers, so on and so forth to achieve missions. So it's kind of being utilized and being ready to, you know, when you're called upon to, you know, either be an example or kind of help in, in whatever way you're going to help. So I think it's just kind of just being ready at all times. And when there's a calling, you know, listen to it and, and go through with it. So then how do you actually build up spiritual resilience within your life, you yourself? 
I mean, praying, uh, praying as much as possible. Like sometimes like I'll go work out and instead of listening to music, I'll just press the Bible app and it'll go. And it's one of those things that it's happened in the time where it's like the, the, uh, the verse of the day. And I'm like really like struggling with something or something is like really heavy on, you know, uh, uh, on my mind. And it's like the verse that has to do specifically for it. And it just like aligns and it clicks and it gives you a lot of, um, I guess, uh, a reassurance in a way, I think being amongst people, uh, you know, of the faith or believers, uh, you know, worshiping together, uh, kind of recharging because it's tough when you throw yourself kind of in the, in the world, uh, you're going to get beat up from, a I guess, spiritual sense. So surrounding yourself and having kind of a strong community, a strong network around you as hell, uh, as well, definitely helps. Yeah. So what role did it play in? Because, I mean, coming from the Ukraine, age five and then trying to reestablish in your new home, how did spiritual resilience play into that for you? I mean, personally, for me, it was it was very easy uh, because I was a child. So it was like a transition. It was all put on my, you know, grandparents and and parents shoulders in a way. And, you know. I, I think I, I learned and I was very intuitive at a young age. So there's, I remember one instance, somebody like a pastor came over and I had one of those like Bible, like kids Bibles where it'd be like the Bible story and the picture associated to it. So I would look at the picture and like literally, uh, and then when my mom or, or dad or grandparents read it to me, I memorized like the whole story word for word. And like that picture brought back like word for word, like memorizing everything. So like th they would be sitting there and it's like, uh, like you're literally, can he read? And I was like very young, like to read, and I would be reciting everything. So I think it's just, you know, my parents bringing me up within the faith, um, seeing or having a great example, I think is key as well, because, you know, having 29 foster kids and seeing a lot of them, the situations that they came from and, a lot of them are, you know, three, four, five years old, have been through more than a lot of adults have. And just the, the, the system around them, there's no any, any, like no role models, no examples, nobody with any kind of like, you know, faith or any kind of like, I don't know, even getting out of their own rut or in a generational situation, because a lot of them have parents and grandparents that have been in the foster care system. So I think like, who you have and like what you put in your mind, what you consume, you know, spiritually really like has an impact, especially at a young age. So if you bring a child up and teach them like your morals, your values, what you believe, I think it has a resonating impact even at a young age. So do you have a moment when you had to rely solely on spiritual resilience in order to make it through what you were going through in that moment? I mean, I guess at times, like, you know, physical things, um, I feel like I, I'm a person that do, does things to the extreme. So, <clears throat> and in a, I guess in a good way, um, like our first two kids we had with us, we were told we were going to be able to adopt them. And that like kind of fell through. We had them for almost a year. <laughs> so that kind of hit us hard. So kind of dealing with that i never really really rode a bike i went and bought a bike hmm. i guess in the first day rode like 50 miles so like getting to a situation potentially like i mean i'm in like a 
wooded area it's night like ending up places where it's just like you and your thoughts and then getting out of it um like we mentioned i trained with the marine corps to potentially be a marine corps officer so some of the physical fitness things there like a lot of i guess in the workplace people that i worked with coming from different parts of the world different mentalities oftentimes kind of really um maintaining who i am regardless of the environment i'm in because it's easy to you know be faithful or resilient or uh you know quote unquote a christian where everything is like great or you're in like a church setting when like everybody's stacked against you um or you're in like a country where let's say christianity is um illegal then it's like you're really showing kind of who you are so i think showing who i am my morals and beliefs in situations regardless if it's like the 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 best environment for it like the safest for that idea and that kind of uh viewpoint or if it's just like potentially can can lead to you know being fired so i think it's having that boldness and regardless of what situation you're in yeah and i and i can only imagine like my my wife and i talked about uh, you know going through and doing fostering as well like that was something that was you know a potential thing for us but I, I I could not get over the idea of bringing somebody into my home and then having to, you know, have them leave. Now, granted, foster care, the whole the whole point of foster care is reunification with the birth parents as much as possible and to whatever extent is there. How did that weigh on you? Like when you when you I mean, 29 kids. <clears throat> Yeah, I call it uh, emotional masochism Oof. because you're like just putting yourself through pain over and over again. And you know it's coming because, you know, majority of the kids are going to go. So I don't know if I really coined that fl- phrase. I've been on a few shows where they're like, oh, I like that. <laughs> but uh, that's how the only way I can compare it. It's like, you know, it's coming, but you still like it's like doing the greater good at the expense of your own, you know, sanity and feelings. Mm. So like you said, the the goal is reunification. Oftentimes I may not agree because you know, they're going back to a situation that's still not the best for them to thrive. And a lot of them, you know, have returned to us only in a few weeks after Mm -hmm. reunification, after we voiced our opinions. So it's, you know, caring about loving the kids that are with us, regardless of the duration of time, you know, a weekend to several years and just worrying about them, uh, what they're doing, you know, if they have even, you know, a safe place to sleep and, you know, adequate nutrition so i mean it's it's tough because you know it's going to happen you get attached because you want to you know be the best person and and parent for every child and give every child the opportunity to you know be kids while they're with you and potentially heal or you know mend the things that they've been through so i mean it's it every case is tough yeah and i think that's been a a important part for us with our boy is allowing him to be a child again because of you know what he lived through and what he went through you just want them to have that moment of just you know play let them let them play and not have to worry about a single thing but i'm the emotional one when it comes to that type of stuff with with her so that's why i always had that issue was was there a balance between you and your wife in going into and through foster care um i mean we didn't because we explored first like adopting like internationally but or even in the u.s but a lot of that is like a fee you mm-hmm. know a lot of the times forty fifty thousand dollars and at that time 
we spent over a hundred thousand dollars already on infertility treatments out of pocket. So like we were, you know, not in necessarily a financial situation, but uh, we talked about it together and uh, we went to an orientation session. Um, you know, uh, my wife is the one that gets kind of the calls for the placements and then calls me. So a lot of the time it's like, oh, there's five kids. I'm like, we can't, we can't. Hmm. So there's a lot of like me trying to be the voice of reason and her kind of like more thinking with her, um, you know, with her heart. So, you know, we, if we took every child that they called us for, we would at this point probably have had 50 to 60 kids. And I don't know if that's even like mentally possible to survive in a way, but it's one of those things, I guess you, you don't know what you're capable of until you do it. Because if you ask me a few years before, we fostered you know our first placement or even asked me if you think you would be a foster parent a foster dad i'd probably say no based on like all the stuff going on in life and then the most we've had is five kids under the age of four if you ask me if that situation i'm like no that's like that's outlandish so you really don't know what you're capable of until you're kind of thrown into the situation and, and forced to kind of step up yeah and that's just it having that many children at any one given time is in my mind, I'm sitting here going, Ooh, no, no. I don't know if I would be capable of doing that mentally, physically, anything. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, it's tough on you. It's tough, tough. Um, I guess on your, you know, mental well-being. it's tough on your relationship because oftentimes you don't have time to, you know, kind of spend with your spouse or, you know, devote to each other. But um, I, I, I guess it's, it's easier, like with the schedule, the biggest thing I can say, the kids needed kind of structure because they were coming from situations where um, there was, uh, you know, malnutrition. So they don't know when the next time they'll eat. So, you know, oftentimes they'll come and the issue is food hoarding. So they'll eat to the point where they're like stuffed and, you know, throw up where they're overeating because they don't know when the next meal is. They're like, uh, you know, a hungry lion that you see just like tries to stack, you know, 40, 50 pounds of, of meat in the sitting because they don't know the next time that potentially they'll eat. So really like that schedule uh, normalizes and lets them see that like this is reoccurring. You know, this is a routine. So routine and, and schedules are big um, in terms of like, demonstrating to the children that they're safe that they're going to be well fed that they're taken care of they're going to have clean clothes they have a bed to sleep in so uh, having them understand that they're going to school or daycare at a certain time they're either eating breakfast at home or at school lunch same thing you know how weekends are and then having them do it several times where it becomes somewhat of a routine they potentially get more comfortable and really having schedules with that amount of kids uh you know and taking them from a place one place to another like it's a lot of logistical things so like you have to be good at logistics at a certain point so you said four or five kids at one time five under the age of and four. were they siblings or were they different uh no there were five different uh well two were cousins but there's still two different cases and um there's five boys, wow. one of which was our son that we currently have. He was like the baby, like the smallest one out of them. Oh, my goodness. Now, oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. So, that's a lot to handle, too. So the one boy, the youngest, is the one that you ended up adopting. Did yeah. he have any siblings with them? or? No. I mean, he has siblings out there that 
there are different fathers, but his, her, his mom has, you know, been at this point addicted to drugs for, you know, over a decade. And uh, he has, I believe, six other siblings, all of which had ter- parental rights terminated and they're all a lot older than mm. him. They're like, <clears throat> uh, you know, 10 to early teens ish. So he has siblings out there, a good amount of siblings, but they're, they've all been, you know, adopted yeah. as well. Well, I mean, thank you for doing that. Thank you for taking the time to actually, you know, you and your wife both to invest in multiple kids' lives. Are you all going back to go back to fostering at all? Or are you just, are you kind of done until the dust settles? <clears throat> Well, we also, we just had uh, a child reunified. So we had him for about a year. He was reunified. He was then returned back in the system for neglect again. And then he was with us for another, you know, year and a half or so. So like in total, he was with us for like almost three years. He actually went home, um, you know, not too long ago. Like it's still fresh. We, you know, we were going actually through his room because it was Lego themed. Uh, putting all the stuff away and just like reminiscing like us going to Legoland, Disney World, so on and so forth. But yeah, we had another placement that actually just was um, recently reunified. But we're like kind of like very burnt out. Like the, I guess the, uh, whatever the American analogy, the the pot at the end of the rainbow or whatever was us, you know, adopting. And we did that. So we don't know if we potentially uh, will adopt or not, but it's kind of like getting our sanity back and working on each other because we've been through a lot of other traumatic things, like six miscarriages that have taken a toll on our relationship. So really kind of getting back to ourselves and potentially growing back closer uh, as a couple. But I mean, it's never out of the question. It's just like at this point we're and we've seen so many things because a lot of good foster parents close, especially in the state of New Jersey, because they deal with the state. The state is like horrendous, like state workers. There's a lot of bad workers, a lot of situations where you see kids not getting the therapy they need or other things. And, you know, you're constantly like feel like you're supposed to be working with the division of child services. A lot of the time it feels like you're butting heads and you're like constantly defending yourself because some make believe nonsense. So a lot of people get burnt out and say, hey, I'm doing this as, you know, kind of a courtesy and, you know, giving back to kids like I don't I don't need this from, you know to experience so you know we've had situations where caseworkers were like you know it doesn't matter what you say you can never get me fired so having that kind of mindset you're not necessarily there for the best interest of the child so wow. you know not only are we burnt out emotionally uh, from the kids leaving 29 or 28 because we adopted our son also burnt out from like operating in this twilight zone where people just like aren't accountable and kind of are nasty and uh you know, potentially want to throw you the bus for non-existent things. Well, just so you know, it doesn't end at the Jersey border. So we 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 have experienced similar ourselves. Uh, we got blessed with our placement uh, person. She she ended up being really really absolutely wonderful. But leading up to her was pretty much the exact same thing, kind of as you were going through. So thank you for doing that. And I definitely see that you need to invest into your spouse a lot more. And in these types of situations, it can be hard. So how are you investing into your marriage? 
just taking the time. I mean, we just got back from a family vacation, just taking the time for ourselves, like making sure there's like, you know, a night every week or whatever for ourselves, either dinner or a date night or an activity, potentially taking just trips together. I mean, we're going to start going to, uh, to counseling as well. So kind of talking through that because there's, you know, situations that have arose through what we've experienced, you know, things going, uh, I guess, reoccurring or kind of lingering. Like, I mean, I've experienced like domestic abuse or seeing it when I was younger, like my, my dad, you know, being abusive to my mom and my grandparents and stuff. And that kind of carried through, uh, I guess, my adulthood and led to certain like anger issues. So like being quick to anger and stuff. So like that's been a reoccurring theme. So working on that, working on communication and kind of like I guess getting our marriage closer, like back to God, uh, you know, with God's blessing. Um, so just really taking the time for ourselves and I guess re rediscovering ourselves because, you know, anybody can get lost when, you know, you, you raised 29 kids basically. And in a short amount of time, you've experienced six miscarriages, five deaths in like two years. So it's just like taking the time from just getting, I guess, beat up for like <laughs> in different areas of your life for several years to really like, I guess, regroup and, you know, kind of double down together. So in going through that, how do you fill into yourself? Like what kind of books do you read uh, to be able to help you get through? <clears throat> I mean, there's a lot of books, but I, I mean, I'll also uh, like I'll always take it back to like the bible because that's the most kind of like life lessons i've learned and the most like realistic advice that has benefited me and it's one of those things where i don't necessarily like to read so i'll put the bible up and it's like driving and listening or dri like listening through you know the uh satellite radio so it's 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 really that and i think anything you're going through there's like a corresponding learning lesson or a bible verse that like lines up with it other than than that just like motivating things but it's one of those things where it's like without action it doesn't matter a lot of people will you know go on youtube and watch like a motivational speaker regardless of the space maybe business or somebody like you know gary vaynerchuk about like some some whatever and you have that kind of like initial i guess high like that dopamine hit like i'm going to take action i'm going to take action and 99 percent of people don't take action so like that without that action, like what's good, what's motivation really give you other than kind of like a false sense of, uh, you know, potential accomplishment. Yeah. And with that, do you have any final words for our list for our listeners? <clears throat> yeah. You don't know necessarily what, what, uh, I guess cards you're dealt in your life or even where you start your life. I mean, you can start your life overseas, end up in the U S you can, you know, potentially you have your life figured out, but it's like that. I guess Mike Tyson has a quote, the, uh, uh, you know, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the mouth or whatever. So it's like, you know, life will punch you over and over and over again. It's how you actually like deal with it. And it's one of those things you start, I guess, experiencing hardships. And at the time that grieving process, it's like an open wound. Mm -hmm. Eventually time will heal that wound, but you'll always have that like reminding scar. Um, and I feel like, those things prepare you for bigger challenges ahead as well. Gary V, Mike Tyson, Rocky, we get them all on the quotes. Hey, thank you so much for investing in us today. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and have the conversation. I know it wasn't easy because I know a lot of those aspects in my life as well. 
And so thank you for sharing and being open for sharing with our listeners. I really, really do appreciate it. And uh, with that, uh, stay tuned. We're going to have more wonderful episodes coming to you week after week after week. Thank you, Jeff, for making me sound good every single week. I know you are, in fact, the hardest working man in the entire industry. So thank you so much. Uh, we are all blessed by you and everything that you do for us here at the Wartime Leadership Podcast. Be blessed. Oh, 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 oh,